Raise your foot up. He elected to do this without shoes on, so he's comfortable. Wow, thank you so much. I want to do a little something that uh, I don't often do, but I want to do it today because I had a friend whose name was Augustine Mandino. Anybody know who Og Mandino is? So I was talking to him one day and he said he interviewed this old woman and she said, uh, he asked her, how would you rate your life? She said, well, it had its moments, but if I had it to do over again, that's all I would have is moments, one after the other. So for me, this is a moment. So I want to share it. So I'm going to ask you all, when I say, this is Brooks Agnew saying hello from, you say, journey to truth. Okay? Here we go. That doesn't get any better than that. Thank you so much. So this is uh, the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. We decided to call it that instead of the Hollow Earth Expedition because it's about inner earth as well as inner earth because we have this symbiotic relationship with the planet. So what you're about to see is the hard science of what the scientific community has been doing about the hypothesis that we live on a molten ball floating through space on tectonic plates like cornflakes in a bowl of milk. And we're gonna to try to prove that hypothesis true today. And if we can't, then that means the opposite is true. I have written some books that cover this. I started writing the Ark of Millions of Years series right after 9-11, and uh, by 2007 we had them done, 2,000 pages, about 44 ancient cultures, and one of the common themes that we found among all these ancient cultures, Babylonians, Zapotecs, Olmecs, is they all believed in some life force, some life energy, some inner intelligence that came out of the planet to meet mankind and to help mankind. So somebody handed me a book on hollow earth, somewhere in the writing of these books. And I said, oh, that's nice. And I put it on the shelf and didn't think about it again for a while until something very strange happened in space. And I'll share that with you in just a minute. So I wrote uh, Remembering the Future and Alienated Nation and recently the Birth Trilogy, which is a story of earth as a living thing. It's alive and it has a symbiotic relationship with mankind. And when mankind becomes wicked, Earth rises up and spanks mankind down to a few tribes where they have to start over again. But this last time, mankind grew too fast. Earth didn't have a chance to respond. So now there's eight billion of us and Earth can't decide whether to destroy us or to release its bounty to us. So it decides to split into a higher energy Earth and a lower energy Earth, and mankind divides with the planet. That's kind of what we're seeing happen right now. 
This is 1,100 pages, an action-adventure story, and then charm of favor. And most recently, Asteroid Mining, the Future of Energy. So people ask me all the time, so where does hollow earth theory come from anyway? I mean, I read the Smoky God. Is that where it comes from? No, actually, a long time before that. It goes all the way back to Sir Edmund Halley. Yeah, 1684. And he had a contemporary. By the way, this is his drawing of what he imagined hollow earth looked like. And he was a very prominent scientist. In fact, his income came from his ability to wow the scientific community in the world. And he had a contemporary whose name was Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton, although a much better mathematician, also was focused on the motion of planets. And he came up with this thin shell physics equation, which we're gonna talk a little bit about. There will be an exam at the end, so. Uh, but some remarkable assumptions from these two great scientists without actually taking any samples, and it caused the scientific community, NASA, JPL, other communities around the world, to take notice and to try to run experiments to gather data. <clears throat> My ancestor is Sir James Ross. He's the discoverer of the North Magnetic Pole. This is his picture. I know I was at a place one time and people were pointing like that and I went, I'm back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is in Stranraer, Scotland, my family's hometown. And this is Sir James Ross's bust on the wall. And this is a painting of his ships that he went and found the North Magnetic Pole with. So there was another explorer in 1965. His name was Marshall Gardner. And he was crazy enough to patent the hollow earth. So there is a patent on the hollow earth. And it's Marshall Gardner that came up with it. He ended up dying of pneumonia searching for the opening up in the Arctic on a dog sled. So a lot of people have tried their very best to find this legendary opening. Another name you might know is Admiral Byrd, right? You know this name? You know that he had a uh, airplane called the Josephine Ford, which is a Ford trimotor. He took it apart, put it on a ship called the Chantilly, sailed to Spitsbergen, Norway, where they rebuilt it on the beach in a snowstorm, and he took off and flew at the blistering speed of 114 miles an hour at 2,500 feet for almost 16 hours round trip without landing. They say he flew to the North Pole, flew around it for 15 minutes, and flew all the way back while his engineer on his belly in the back of the plane hand pumped fuel from cans into the wings so they could make it back. Quite a feat. That's why he's an aviation hero instead of a statistic because nobody knew if there were any mountains or anything. He didn't know if he was gonna fly into something. He was flying what we call IFR. Any pilots in here? You know what IFR is? It means instrument flight rating, except they didn't have any instruments in those days. So we call that I fly roads, except there weren't any roads. You know how they navigated? From the cockpit? With a sextant. Can you use a sextant? I can probably out here on the river if somebody holds me up real steady. 
They navigated with a sextant. That's how good these two guys were. So what supports hollow earth theory now? 1926 is gone, Edmund Halley's gone, Isaac Newton's gone. What supports hollow earth theory now? Where's the science? Where's the sauce, right? Well, there must be something to it because when I started investigating in 2006, I ran against the Data Denial Act. Because I said, well, I'll just go to Google. I'll get some Google Earth pictures. We'll look at this baby. It's probably sitting right there. Nope. The NOAA and the European Organization for the Exploitation of Meteorological Satellites, or UMITSAT, came up with the Data Denial Act, which says there are no publicly available images of the planet above the 60th parallel. Everything you see is animated. They're afraid people might use it for targeting video for, I guess, cruise missiles to go over the polar caps, but that's been in place since 2006. So there are no publicly available images of the North Pole. You can look at it from satellites, but it's always covered in clouds. And then something happened. We launched Cassini. And Cassini was going to go on a long route through the solar system. But on its way, it looked over its shoulder, and it looked back at Earth. And it saw this energy flowing around the Earth. And it excited everybody, because this side of the Earth was not the side of the Earth that was facing the sun. They said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the aurora has always happened in wintertime, right? The side that doesn't face the sun, the energy goes around and gathers on the leeward side of the earth and gives us the aurora borealis and the aurora australis. This didn't rhyme or reason, and it excited my friends down at JPL, and they decided to build the Themis Project. Anybody ever hear of the Themis Project? This really had people enough to where they were going to spend a lot of money in a short amount of time to try to find out what the heck is going on. So they started building these satellites, five of them. Today we call them CubeSats, but in those days they were a little larger, about the size of an of a average drop-in range. And they stuffed them all inside of a nose cone, and they launched them into five different orbits around the planet and waited until they lined up. When they lined up, they turned the project on, and they started taking measurements. Where is this energy coming from that's causing this aurora? And lo and behold, between satellites four and five, an explosion happened. Out of nowhere, interdimensional. They called it a cosmic bullet. And the energy passed the inner satellites and struck the Earth, and there was the aurora. And the other energy went out into space. They don't know where it went. So that was their report. That's it, the auroras are caused by cosmic bullets. And I wrote them, I said, you know, guys, one event does not an experiment make. We like reliable and repeatable information, so you need to do this again. Well, they couldn't line the satellites up again, so the Themis pro, uh, program did something else. But still, it raised a question. So Harvard came up with this hypothesis that planets form as hollow spheres. It was a little ahead of its time because we were still trying to prove we live on a molten ball floating through space, but this is their model that they issued, that we have this very thick mantle sort of crust, 
And then there's an opening, we're not really sure what that's made of, and then there's a core, and we're not really sure what that's made of. So we started to question the way that planets form in the first place, and there are two theories. One is called accretion disk theory. This is where you have a large, swirling mass of gas in space, and we got plenty of pictures of those. And slowly, over billions of years, they begin to collapse, and they collapse into planets and stars, and sooner or later the star lights up, and, and that's where it is. Of course, we haven't been around long enough to actually observe this happening, so we just have snapshots of what we think is happening. In fact, this is an animation of what we think is happening. And then we have another idea, and uh, that is that it's not these big giant coalescing bodies of gas that form suns and planets over a period of time. We have another idea of electric universe, electric planetary formation theory, that instead of clouds of gas coalescing to become stars, they light up through an electrical burst. And the interesting thing is we also have examples of this in space. We have all kinds of deep space pictures that show these exact kind of nebula with that exact kind of formation of stars. And it's interesting. And it's got people excited, not just in the, in the artistic world, but in the scientific world as well. All kinds of calculations and all kinds of satellite projects that are being planned and have been planned and have gathered data. We can animate them and then we could take pictures in space and we could say, hey, wait a minute, that looks just like our glass ball with a, with a plasma uh, cloud in it. So we have empirical data to back up this may be the way planets form. So, okay, now we know how they form. How is it that they behave once they form? Well, turns out it's kind of unstable, unstable. The first instability theory is that the planet forms so fast, it forms so much heat and so much energy in itself that it explodes. It spins faster and faster and faster and faster and begins to exert such forces on the inside of it like an ice skater, you know, drawing her arms in really fast. You can see when she is putting this energy in and she spins and she begins to pull her arms in you can see that's called conservation of momentum. Now, she didn't explode, obviously, but that's what a planet would do. So the other instability is that it doesn't explode. It gets lopsided. All the heavy stuff slings to one side, and it throws off a piece of itself or two, like a moon, and we have an example of that in our own solar system with Venus and Mercury. And the third one is kind of the sweet spot. The planet doesn't explode. The planet doesn't get lopsided and spit a piece of itself off. Instead, the crust begins to crack and come apart, and then it stops, and then it cools and solidifies again. And then it expands again and cracks, and expands again and cracks. And this is what we see happening. Some planets expand very slowly, but if they expand, what do they leave behind? What does it look like? Well, there's one guy named Neil Adams did this marvelous film that kind of proves that Earth is about three times its original diameter. 
I'll show you the film. The idea of that there's a Gondawanda land, which is a, a place on ancient earth where all the land was located in one place. That's an assumption that earth is the same diameter now as it was like two billion years ago. Not true, because we have evidence. I'll show it to you here in just a second. What if earth was once one third its original, its current size? And so this is Neil Adams' little short video I'll share with you. We come to the earth which well grew to get here, the way it is now. Here is our world, our planet earth floating in space. We will be going backward in time, imperfectly, but done in a very disciplined manner. Please notice there is no subduction, no rotation of tectonic plates, no twisting, no form fitting, no altering shapes or sizes. It would be impossible, impossible for these continental plates to fit together perfectly without this being true, and yet the upper tectonic plates fit together perfectly on a much smaller planet. Yes, there's been some erosion, landslides, blah, blah, but overall, this activity is insignificant. There is a kind of conspiracy of silence among certain scientists. They know, but are not telling you, that the upper tectonic plates of Earth also join in the Pacific, not partially, they join totally. You are asked to believe that the continents swim or drift about willy-nilly, bumping and crashing as if they were on a grease skillet. This is not true. The simple truth is apparently too upsetting to too many apple carts. We're now going forward in time to show how the actual growth of the Earth took place. Imperfect as to details, but the overall is nailed. Antarctica, as you see, has become subtropical. Africa and a smaller globe move way downward under the globe. In fact, for hundreds of millions of years, the bottom of Africa was the South Pole. South America's tail goes under and wraps around the bottom of Africa. Then incredibly, it joins coasts with Antarctica. 65 million years ago and more, these continents were joined and marsupials like the duck-billed platypus roamed from Australia, Antarctica, and across southern South America and up into Africa, the platypus. Dinosaurs roamed all over this world on the upper tectonic plate because there were no oceans, just shallow seas. Here today, Antarctica is frozen over and Australia and its surrounding islands are the remaining home of marsupials. Do you see how broadly the Pacific is opening compared to the Atlantic? This is exactly why the knee-jerk Pangaea theory exists. The Pacific spread is too difficult to easily visualize because it's so big. The Atlantic spread is so obvious that a child would recognize it, but they are the same. So there's a thing in science we call Occam's razor. Once you cut away all the things that don't make sense, what is left is the true answer, whether you like it or not. 
So one of the things that we know is that all the tectonic plates, all the continental shelves of our planet all fit together perfectly if the planet's one-third its current size. Like Neil said, a five-year-old can put that together. What we have done is we've made an assumption that the diameter of Earth has always been fixed. Not so. Not so. We see where these knit lines are because there are volcanic, there is volcanic activity along all of it, even to this day. To this very day, 2023, the seafloor is cracking open and filling in with molten material. Solar flares come from the sun, they come to Earth, and they go around our planet, around the magnetos uh, uh, magnetosphere, and protect us. Our magnetosphere protects us from these violent explosions from the sun. Somebody said, why don't we just build a big spaceship? We'll go through space. Take a look around. We are on a spaceship. We just happen to be living on the surface of it. These are real-time 4K images of the aurora over the planet. So my ancestor, Sir James Ross, on his expedition to find the North Magnetic Pole, by the way, it took him two tries. The first time he went, he got locked in ice and the ice smashed his ships. So they offloaded everything onto the ice, set up tents, and they wintered up there off the coast of Ellesmere Island. And they waited till spring for a rescue ships to come and get him. And the damn fool went back and got more ships and did it again. And this time he found it, of course. But on his way, he finds this crazy little gull called the Ross Gull. The interesting thing about this gull is it does not fly south like other birds in the Arctic winter. It flies north. And I talked to the world's leading ornithologist about this little gull, and to this day, they do not know where this bird nests in the wintertime in the Arctic. It's got to go someplace warm because this gull is not built like a penguin. It's not made to take 70 below temperatures. We just don't know. We don't know where it goes between October and June. <clears throat> so now let's talk about some evidence, some real hard evidence, not animals, not legends, not videos. So from deep beneath the ocean floor, Dr. Y Sessions at Washington University got his grad students to go to work. He paid them day old pizza and they went through 600,000 seismograms. You know what a seismogram is? It's a printout from an earthquake. And they took these seismograms one at a time and fed them into a computer and modeled them. And what they found was that underneath the Atlantic Ocean, underneath the crust of the Atlantic Ocean, was another ocean the size of the Arctic Ocean. How did they find it? They could detect the waves crashing on a shore inside the planet. Oh, it rocked the world. Because they said, you gotta be wrong. No, it was hard evidence. Hard evidence. And by the way, that seafloor, this is Jill Heinerth, one of the world's best under ice divers on the planet. And this is her taking photographs of volcanic vents where the crust 
underneath the ocean is cracking open and filling in with molten material today. Yes, the earth is still expanding, very slowly now, but still expanding. So if it's expanding, what did it leave behind? That's the question. We think with this inner ocean that there's life in that ocean because it's liquid. And it turns out that in 2008, we had a very strange winter in the Arctic. It was warm. And not only was it warm, but the wind blew from the west very hard and very long. And it did something to the ice that we don't see much in the Arctic. We do see it in the Antarctic, but it's called calving, like a cow having a calf. But calving is where the wind puts a tremendous amount of stress on the ice, and it cracks along a long line, and a big piece like the size of a state breaks off. Well, that's what happened in 2008. Oh, it opened a sea passage that has not been opened in maybe, I don't know, 20,000 years. That was anomalous enough. But the next year, Scripps Institute and what's called WORMS, W-O-R-M-S, that's their, that's their acronym, they go to Malaysia every year and they sample rays, you know, like manta rays and stingrays. Why? Because like in the lower left-hand picture, you see this tree frog Rays are like the tree frogs of the ocean. So we pollute the ocean, and animals respond to that pollution by mutating. Rays do it worse than anything. So they go sample the rays to see how we're doing. Normally, they find about 120, maybe 130 mutations, except in 2009. They found 1,500, and they weren't mutations. They were whole species. Like this one in the upper left is called a frilled shark. The only problem is that hasn't existed in a million and a half years in our seas. A dorsal squid you see at the bottom. We've never seen one before. All kinds of strange species showed up. Alive, adult versions in our nets. We didn't know where they came from, but it made sense that if there's an opening in the crust, an opening in the ice, then maybe these sea creatures swam into our ocean, caught our Gulf Stream, and got netted in our nets. Just another piece of evidence that there's another environment with another set of life in it that's blending with ours. So then we started looking at seismic evidence. And mind you, these people do not talk to one another. Oceanographers don't talk to geologists. Geologists don't talk to astronomers. They don't talk to mathematicians. They leave that up to people like me. We're called integrators. We take results of a lot of different experiments and put them together to come up with uh, what we call integrated conclusions. And then we go get beat up at conferences about it. But this is way we look at our Earth right now uh, from seismic data. We get an earthquake, say up here at about uh, 1 o'clock, and when it thumps the planet, the vibrations go through the planet and they end up somewhere else. And we have what are called P waves, which are pressure waves, and S waves, which are shear waves. And um, we kind of do a CAT scan of the Earth, you know, like a CT scan is using vibrations. Vibrations travel through different things at different speeds, like bone and muscle and fat and water uh, translate 
vibrations at different speeds. Well, so does rock and metal and molten material and water. And so we can take a look at what the inside of the Earth looks like. But again, if you're trying to make the data force your preconception what the Earth looks like, you get all kinds of crazy things like, I don't know, shadow zones, right? So every time we do a CAT scan of the Earth, and by the way, this is right out of the textbooks, you see the shadow zone. See the little dotted line there? Yep, we got this wave. It showed up. We don't know where it came from. We're kind of drawing a dotted line back because everybody knows we live on a molten ball in space. It's a broken model. Every single drawing I could find in every single ge geology textbook looks just like this. Shadow zones, they call it. I think it's a broken model. So we ran the math the other way. We said, okay, let's take the vibrations where they show up and let's map them backwards to the point of the earthquake. And let's just see what it looks like. Well, we got a little different image. This works without exception. No shadow zones. It looks like this. No shadow zones. Jan Lambrecht did a great job putting this together. Every single time we run it, we come up with this image. Oops, something's missing. <laughs> the molten center. So then, this caused Carnegie Science and uh, uh, Cambridge and other universities, especially where there's one in Japan, uh, that ran what's called spectrographic evidence of the core. Sort of like, uh, if I had this microphone and I listened to a sound, I could put on a spectrum analyzer and I could see what frequencies those sounds are and I could tell who's speaking or if it's an animal or a bird or a train coming by, something like that. We do the same thing in science and we have catalogs and catalogs and catalogs of all kinds of elements and we know what their what their signature is, what their frequency is, like we know what note it is on the guitar. And so they built this experiment called the Diamond Anvil. And the Diamond Anvil is a unique instrument because it's on hydraulic rams. We take an industrial diamond, it's very, very hard, and we put a crucible in between them and we smash them at incredible pressures, what we think is the pressure at the center of the earth. And then we shoot a laser through the diamond to heat up that crucible to the temperature we think the center of the Earth is at, because those are the frequencies that we're getting. And when I say, that, by the way, this is what the, the industrial diamond looks like, is quite the experiment. They've duplicated it three times, three different labs. That's the kind of data we like to see. But we keep getting this double hump. Well, we know what the one hump is. It's iron. It's iron all day long. At 6,000 degrees C, which means it has to be matrixed with something or it's not going to stay together. It's going to come apart. Turns out that's what the second hump is. The second hump is xenon. Xenon. Now, I'll tell you, this answered a lot of questions for chemists. We have a law in chemistry called the law of partial pressures. If you have a, if you have a bottle of Pepsi, that you haven't opened, you'll notice it's full of Pepsi except for the head space, right? The little bit of air under the cap. Well, we can take a needle and go through the cap and we can sample that air space. 
And the law says that the airspace will have exactly the proportion of all the chemicals in the Pepsi. That's called the law of partial pressures. We do the same thing with our atmosphere and the ocean, except the xenon's missing, about 90% of it. And we never knew why until now, because the core is made of a solid iron crystal at 6,000 degrees C matrixed with xenon. And that's what it looks like. This is the crucible of the experiment. So now we know that we have a solid core and it's way denser than we thought it was. We thought it was somewhere around maybe nine grams per cubic centimeter. Turns out it's something like 14 and a half grams per cubic centimeter. Now, I'll just run some quick math by you, a concept by you. We can tell how heavy planets are by the size of their orbit and the amount of time it takes for them to go around the sun. Okay, that makes logical sense. And so when we say that the Earth weighs a certain amount of tonnage, we're basing it on that transit time around the sun and, of course, its diameter, assuming that we know how dense the Earth is. And that's the big assumption because 3,000 meters below our surface, everything begins to change. Now, we obviously haven't drilled there. We've only drilled eight eight. Yeah, roughly eight miles into the Earth, that's it, about 40,000 feet, which is like nothing. That's like here to St. Louis. It's not very far at all. The, the mantle or the crust of the Earth is somewhere around 900 miles thick. And we're only guessing what it's made out of. Beyond that, we think the core is solid iron. It looks something like Harvard's model, like this. So the mantle, the, the core, uh, the crust itself is kind of Swiss cheesy. So there are a lot of hollow spaces, but probably not habitable. Inside though, if there's a liquid ocean under there, it's not steam, it's not frozen. I guarantee you, if it's liquid water, there's life in it. Guarantee you. That's just the way Earth is. The core is about 1,100 miles away from that. That's a pretty good distance, even at 6,000 degrees C. If there's air between the core and the crust, it's probably only about 100 degrees, 110 degrees on the surface. That's livable. And by the way, no nighttime and no radiation because the wavelength of light is conducive to grow plants, but it's not conducive to make ultraviolet radiation. So things would live a very, very long time. These are infrared version, uh, visions of the Earth. And in the very bottom, you can see a Tibetan uh, diagram which shows the way the ancients thought about the Earth. And there's an overall pattern in this, which I will refresh your memory with. Some of you are wearing it today, so you'll probably know exactly what I'm talking about. So let's look at the gravitational evidence of the core. Remember I told you we think we know how much the Earth weighs because it travels around the sun at a certain amount of time, a certain distance, we got to figure it out. <clears throat> well, back to uh, Isaac Newton's theory about uh, two gravitational bodies in space having a certain distance apart. This won't be on the exam. You don't have to pay attention to that. 
But uh, regardless of the masses or the distances, the main thing is that F1 and F2 will always be equal. And that's what we find between the Earth and the Moon and the Sun. There are points, which we call Lagrange points, and I'll explain that here in just a second. But here's Newton's thin shell physics in a thought experiment. And you, and you can just go along with me in this. These are simple uh, animations, but it will get my thought experiment across to you. This is why solid planets, or why planets cannot form as solid balls. They must form as spheres. And we're just approaching this from Isaac Newton's mathematics. Because if we have a crust that's 900 miles thick, and we look at our planet, we realize there are two centers of gravity. One is in the crust and one is in the core. So let's run an experiment. Let's say that we're all in this room or one of us is in this room and there's an elevator shaft in this room and there's a bathroom scale in the elevator and I decide to stand on that bathroom scale. Well, I know I weigh 0 0.1 metric tons here in this room. But if I take the elevator to the center of the earth, what do you think my weight will do on the scale? I take the elevator shaft, I'm going down to the center of the earth, I get there. What do you think my weight is? Zero. According to Isaac Newton, inside a sphere, all locations cancel out all other locations. And besides, if I were to go to the North Pole and stand there, no matter which way I faced, which direction would I be facing? South, right? Not east or west, or certainly not north, because I'm standing on the North Pole. If I'm in the center of the Earth, where's all the mass of the Earth? It's above me. So I would weigh nothing. If I weigh nothing, then there's a nothing spot for the core to sit in as well. And now we see that it doesn't crush all down on the core. It looks like this. And on the surface, we're accelerating. Right now, you're not feeling it because you're hopefully in a chair. We're accelerating at a 32 feet per second per second toward the center of the Earth. That's what's holding you in your chair. But on the inside of the crust, it would be about 21 feet per second squared toward the center of the crust because we're in a smaller diameter and less mass. We don't have the mass of the core helping us to accelerate. So we'd weigh less. Animals, plants, everything would be bigger on the inside of the planet. And all we need, all we need to do is find the passage. We need to find the passage underneath the sea to connect the two oceans. We think we know where it is plus or minus 100,000 or 10,000 square miles, which is about 100 miles by 100 miles, which we can survey in 15 days. But I, I'm getting ahead of myself here, getting ahead of myself. So what is the historical and human consciousness evidence that we have? There's a lot. There's more than I can go into tonight, and lots of other people do it better than I do and probably leave you with a better feeling. I'm going to leave you with a scientific feeling. When I went to Tibet, I went across the Tibetan Upper Plateau in two weeks. I don't recommend it. The lowest altitude we were at was 11,500 feet. 
the highest, 18,500. And the only reason we didn't make it to base camp is because four of my team got liquid on their lungs and we made a pact before we left, we all go or we don't go. And so we didn't want to leave those four people behind, so we stopped at 18,500 feet. But everywhere we went in Tibet, we saw this symbol. This symbol of an inner earth with an inner sun. And we saw animals everywhere in positions of praising and, I don't know, bowing to it. Deer and peacocks and all kinds of stuff. And uh, here I am on the top of the college in Lhasa. ...has brought us here to Tibet, high above the city of Lhasa, almost 14,000 feet. Behind me is the symbol of Tibetan Buddhism. At the core of their belief is this symbol. In the center, you'll see the yin and yang. From that, you'll see rays of light coming out to an outer ring. That ring is full of foliage. This is also recognized around the world as a universal symbol of an inner earth. Locked into Tibetan Buddhism as far back as history goes, this afternoon, we're going to talk to a high lama and see if we can find out the roots of this Tibetan Buddhism. I have no idea why he's out of breath. 14,000 feet, you can see the snow on the Himalayas in the background. We're traveling the world, assembling the pieces one by one. Next year, we'll complete the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. So you'll know the truth, how this earth is constructed and why we are here and where we're going. Uh, interesting stuff. This is in the hotel in Lhasa, the Lhasa Hotel. No heat in the hotels if you're planning on going. It's 40 inside the hotel. Yeah, so fortunately I was in a room by myself, so I stole the other bed's comforter and put two of them on my bed. It was very cold there in Tibet, very cold. Um, this symbol's everywhere. It goes all the way back to 646 uh, AD. And it's the core of Buddhism, the fact that, that we are linked to planet Earth, that Earth is this living, sentient being that we have a relationship with. And if we don't treat her well, she treats us unwell. So we'll see how that goes because I think we're getting better and better at it. I travel all over the United States, and I do see that virtually every community is taking care of the planet. The water's clean, the trash is picked up, we don't let forest fires burn uncontrollably. Not like other countries that I've been to, China and Mexico, and uh, let's see, where else did I go? Oh, Nepal. Horrible, horrible centuries of pollution. You cannot believe. Nothing we can do in this country is going to fix what they're doing to the planet. They need to get their act together and stop dumping raw sewage into the rivers and let it, letting it pour into the oceans. So let's talk about the other end of consciousness. Let's talk about the Christian side. If I, I went to a Rosslyn Chapel, which is not far from where my family's from, from Stranraer, Scotland, that I showed you earlier, and there's a little chapel called Rosslyn Chapel. Oh, this is in Tibet. This is Rosslyn Chapel. So you see the same symbol a thousand years apart. 
This inner sun that you see is right above the altar in Rosalind Chapel. It's almost identical to the one in Tibet on the other side of the world. So what about other planets? Well, we have evidence now from Earth. We're gathering it as the years go on. We're comparing it. We have integrators like me putting the data all together to, to show you a multi-dimensional view of what our planet looks like. What about other planets? We've sent a lot of space programs out there. What have they seen? Well, it turns out there's an aurora on Saturn as well, right at the pole, right where it should be. The only trouble is it doesn't line up with the sun either. It only lines up with the center of that planet. What about other ones? Well, this is a Hurricane Cortina. This is an aerial shot. But one of the interesting things that you see in this swirling cloud is the same hexagonal geometry. We saw the same thing on Jupiter. Here's the, an overlay of several gifts that were taken on Jupiter, but you can see the same glow coming out of the core of Jupiter. And that's a long way from the sun. This is Venus's solar depression. And by the way, one of Saturn's moon, Ipsalus, has the same thing, and it's almost perfectly spherical. We have an infrared version of it, and there's Venus's hot spot right at the pole. Seems strange to have these hot spots at the pole. Here's Mars, same thing. At the North Pole, there is a depression. We've got lots of pictures of it now, and we're getting more and more as the days go on. By the way, this is 725 miles wide. It's big, big and noticeable. And the interesting thing about Mars is there's no magnetosphere. Now, it leads us to believe one of two things. Either Mars doesn't have a core, or it does, and it's rotating at the same speed as the crust. And so there's no counter-rotation. There's nothing to create a magnetic field. On Earth, we think that because of conservation of momentum, as our crust cooled and cracked and expanded and cooled and cracked and expanded, that it left our core behind spinning at the original speed. So the core is spinning fast, the crust spinning slow, and that's what's creating the magnetosphere around our planet. As long as that holds, we get to live on the surface. As soon as it stops holding, we got to move inside. It's kind of odd, most people don't know this, but most North Americans only spend 15% of their time outside. 85% of our existence is inside. I don't think that we could survive that well if we were out in the wild all the time. I think we'd live to about 50, and that would be it. <clears throat> Mars does not have a magnetosphere. No, it has gravity, but it doesn't have anything to protect itself from solar radiation. So if the sun has a nasty fit and sends a solar flare toward Mars, you better be inside or underground, because you're not going to survive it. This is what our Earth looks like with X-ray from space. We can see a void where the pole should be. And my good friend Brad Olson knows more about this than I do because he's visited the Arctic the hard way by sea. 
He didn't fly down there. He went in a little boat about this big. And his seas were like as unbelievable. I asked him one time, did you ever have a wave like hit the boat where you thought, oh, this is it, this is it, we're going, we're dying. He said, everyone. So I was asked to throw in a couple slides about Hollow Moon. So how am I doing on time? Am I doing okay on time? We got? Okay, plenty of time. I got kicked off of YouTube because of this. So I'm going to be uh, unbridled here. <laughs> uh, here's what we know about the moon. We don't know much. Uh, we, we have sent a lot of projects there. We've obviously uh, claimed that we have 12 sets of footprints on the moon. We've walked around it, we've taken samples, we've driven around on it, we've launched probes at it. But I am, I am continually surprised that my friends at JPL and at the exuberance of SpaceX uh, about going back to the moon, that all of the things that we thought we had licked in 69 through 72, we now have to do over again, bigger and better and faster, and somehow all of our astronauts came back without any radiation poisoning and uh, lived to be ripe old ages, and now we're worried about sending Snoopy in Orion around the moon. I don't know. But there's some things about the moon that really uh, excite us and have uh, got our, our greed going, shall I say, because on Earth we believe that uh, burning oil is bad for us. We think that, uh, we call it fossil fuels, but it isn't really fossil fuels, it's just long chain hydrocarbons buried in the Earth and I believe constantly generated by the Earth. And we haven't really done that good of a job, I think, shoveling it into our gas tanks and burning it. Earth kind of gave us a couple hundred year head start, let's call it. Gave us oil to power our society until we could figure out a better way to do it. So a better way has been discovered and now we don't want to do it because there are a lot of people making money off the oil. And the whole concept of money is a, is a whole nother uh, presentation. And we're struggling with that inside and outside the space community. But in 1969, we put seismometers on the moon. The very first space team were, were trained as geologists, and they placed accelerometers on the surface of the moon when they were there. And they were designed to send radio broadcasts back to Earth anytime there was any kind of earthquake or moonquake that happened on the moon. So. The, the lunar module takes off, it exhausts its fuel tank, and they jettison it, because they're not bringing it back to Earth, they just dropped it. So it falls back to the moon. Of course, no atmosphere to slow it down, they don't bother putting a parachute on it, they're not worried about hitting any houses or anything on the moon. And it strikes the surface of the moon at a pretty good velocity, which didn't surprise anybody. What kind of surprised everybody that is that the size, the, the geophones, the seismographic equipment they put there actually picked it up. What made a little bit of pee come out 
is that that vibration lasted for almost two hours. And here you see the time. It started and it went on and on and on and oscillated and oscillated and oscillated and they were like, what the hell did we just see? I don't know, bury that, bury that. Well, that's why YouTube kicked me off. But anyway, the point is we think that maybe the moon is an artificial body. Maybe it's an artificial body that's collected a lot of dust over a lot of years, maybe 25 million years, and it resembles a moon now. But one thing we have discovered through high-resolution photography, thank you very much, China's uh, uh, probe around the moon, is we've discovered lava tubes, holes in the surface. This one's only about 300, 400 feet across. Very easy to seal up. And we have lots of pictures of these, several places around the moon that we've taken. We realize that there's an inside to this moon. It might actually be hollow. And one thing is for sure, it looks a lot like lava tubes we have here on this planet. A lot like it. And we've explored them inside. Long lava tubes, no lava gone through them for a long, long time. They're cold, but they're wide open. We've gone out in them and we've photographed them. And some of them are small, like you see these two explorers right here. They're maybe uh, two, three, maybe 10 meters high. And some of them are huge. What we have discovered on the moon through thermal imagery is that some of these caverns are enormous. And the reason we're so interested in this is because of the L-Cross mission. Back in 2006, we launched what's called the L-Cross mission. I say we, I wasn't involved and I was working for a contractor at the time. But the L-Cross mission was fitted with an advanced spectrometer. It was designed to analyze space gases. So we sent it to go around the moon and take samples of the gases above the moon. Why? Say, law of partial pressures. Because we wanted to sample what the moon's made out of by looking at the gases over the moon. And what happened was the L-Cross mission malfunctioned. It ran out of fuel. We don't know why. It might have been a leak. It might have been the British that designed the fuel tanks. I don't know. It could have been anything. But they decided to make good use of it anyway, so they split the L-Cross mission in two. They blew the bolts, and they separated the spectrometer from the fuel engine system, which is the white thing that you see, the engine system. So the engine system weighed about uh, 9,000 pounds, which on the moon isn't much. On the Earth, it's a lot. But when you're falling at 9,000 miles an hour, 10,000 miles an hour, it's a pretty good amount of energy. So the L-Cross mission goes plunging into the moon in what we call Shackelford Crater. It's named after Shackelford, obviously, in a place called Schrodinger's Basin, which is the south pole of the moon. Very interesting to us. It's interesting for a lot of reasons. Number one is we saw a lot of these lava tubes there. And the second is, it has sunshine 24 hours a day. There's no dark side or light side of the moon. In the tops of these craters, they can see the sun the whole time. 
all the way around. So it's easy to set up solar power stations there and, and make a base there, and that's what they want to do. So they wanted to see what the soil was made of. Let's go take a look. Let's, let's look and see. So not only did they drop the engine system, they, they dropped the spectrometer system right behind it. It was chasing it down to the moon. The theory was that, yeah, we'll get this big plume of dust and the spectrometer will fly right through it, we'll sample it really quick, get the sample, send it back to Earth, and then poof, smash into the moon. It'll be great. <laughs> this is what it looked like from Earth. We thought maybe we could get some spectrographic data by looking at it with a telescope and running that information through a spectrometer. This is what it looked like when the engine system hit Shackelford Crater. Too far away. The wavelengths that we were looking for were filtered out by the atmosphere and all kinds of interference from the sun, and we didn't learn diddly squat. But the spectrometer section flew through the plume and sampled it and got the sample and sent it back to us before it smashed into the surface, and we learned something about the moon. It's loaded, loaded with water, which is the same as fuel for us, and helium-3. The crater is about the size of Mount Everest, turned upside down, filled with helium-3. You're supposed to go, yeah! Okay. <laughs> helium-3 is what we're trying to do with cold fusion. We're trying to get to fuse helium-3 to form helium-4. Helium-4 is party balloon gas. That's what we have on this planet. Helium-3, very rare on this planet. You have to gather it around volcanoes, that's about it. But it's hugely plentiful on the moon. Why? Because the sun put it there. And it's been gathering for millions and millions of years. In fact, this one crater has a 10,000-year fuel supply for Earth. And now the race is on. And now everybody wants to go to the moon. They want to get this Shackleford base set up, including Elon Musk. Now, they're saying they want to go to Mars, but that's the watch this hand while this hand does the other thing. That's the old bait and switch. There's enough energy in this one crater to make energy so cheap on this planet, you could literally give it away. You could give it away and let mankind, you know, do what it will with it. It would be that cheap, that plentiful. And, of course, the petroleum industry doesn't want it to happen, but we're kind of switching the paradigm. Remember I told you we're shoveling our planet into our gas tanks and burning it, but there's a lot of other uses for oil. Three-quarters of the things in this room, this laptop, the clothes you're wearing, the shoes you're wearing, all made of oil. The drugs you're taking, the coatings, the lenses in your glasses, all made of oil. Lots of stuff made from long-chain hydrocarbons given by the Earth to us for drill and get it cost. But not energy. Helium-3 from the moon is the solution for the next... 10 millennia of Earth and beyond. Because once we get this fuel supply, we not only have energy, we have rocket fuel. 
And that means that the time to get to Mars goes from seven months to 70 days. And we're talking about million pound ships, 70 days, that's doable. Right now, if we send people to Mars, right now, men and women, and a woman gets pregnant on Mars, that child's a Martian. It's never, ever coming back to Earth. You will never make it here. By the time that child reaches Earth, it'll be born in weightless conditions. It won't even be able to breathe when it gets to Earth. It'd be like taking us in this room and sending us to a planet that weighs 50% more than this one. You, I would go from weighing 0.1 metric tons to weighing, well, so much I couldn't get off the floor. I could barely get off the floor in CrossFit class now. It would be very rough. So if the moon is hollow and we can get there and we can build and we can mine, we can change everything. We can change everything. And remember, the moon's only two days away. So if like you break a bone on the moon, you could be you know, in your local hospital in two days. This is the plan. This is where we're going with the moon. You absolutely guarantee this is where we're going. And inside the moon, those lava tubes, some of them are enormous. We know one that's in Shackleford Crater that's large enough to hold the city of Philadelphia. If we sealed it up and we use the water to make oxygen and we use the helium-3 to make energy, we could pressurize the inside of the moon and live inside the moon. One-sixth gravity, what we have here, which would be kind of cool. I mean, you could, you could carry a, a truck around on your shoulders, but you could still do work. You still have gravity. All your bodily functions would still work. Oh, you'd be able to throw a baseball, like unbelievable. The games would be amazing. <clears throat> moon golf, that's what I'm looking forward to, baby. How far did you drive that? I drove 750 yards today. Very good, yeah. Good. But this is all doable, and the money is not an object because the energy is free. So all this is there. All this is laying there for us. And so this is the next question that comes out. Anytime we follow this subject, whether we're talking about the moon or the earth, we always get to UFOs. What about UFOs? You think the earth is filled with intelligent life? I don't know the answer to the question, but I am a scientist and I love questions. And one thing we know is we have a lot of data. One of my good friends, his name is Dan Willis. He was a radio man on the West Coast and they picked up a distress call from a ship. Help! There's a disc coming up out of the water and it's flying and it's getting ready to go out into space and we don't know what it is. He picked that call up. What do I do with this, sir? <laughs> what do you think he was ordered to do with it? When he got out of the Navy, he shared it with everybody, but when, while he was in, he was ordered to suppress it. So how many people here have seen a UFO? See, that's what I'm talking about. I get that same answer everywhere on the planet. So I'm going, okay, so that's a, that's a no-brainer. We have UFOs. So I know three things now about UFOs. Number one, they do exist. Number two, they're as present as they want to be. And if they wanted to be more present, there's probably not a damn thing we could do about it. 
And number three is, I'm so happy they have not brandished their weapons. But here's what we're talking about. I went to Tibet, and I got aboard a Shorts 360. Anybody know what that is? That's an old turboprop airplane, 19-seater. Shorts made it, and Nepal could afford to buy them. (laughs) And they made these tour airplanes out of it. Of course, it didn't have any cabin door, like between the cockpit and the cabin. And the side glass was all etched up from just flying and flying and flying and never replacing them. So there was taking no pictures out the side windows. So I asked the flight attendant, can I, you know, go up in the cabin and take pictures? Sure. So I went up in the cabin and I straddled the nose wheel gear and sat on my knees and took these pictures out the front window of that Shorts 360. That's why it's kind of a blue tint. But that's Mount Everest and that's K2. And it's right straight off the nose of the aircraft. So I thought it was fascinating. I took as many pictures as I could. And then I went to Trout Lake, to James Gilliland's place, East Seti. You know, I got there as a little sign that says, welcome to the sanctuary. And I thought for a long time, oh, that's an ET sanctuary, that's cool. They can come here and not be molested. I like that idea. And I realized the sanctuary is for us, you know, that we could come there and talk about UFOs without being made fun of. I had this weird friend that had flower bushes in front of his house and, and bees come, you know, to sample all the flowers. So he hung signs on the bushes that say, bees, stay away. And I thought for a long time it was for us, you know, because we can read and shit. So bees, stay away so you don't get stung. But after you knew him for a while, you realized the sign was for the bees. Bees, stay away. But I'm in Trout Lake, and I decided to take pictures of Mount Adams. You know this picture, right? You've seen it a thousand times. Conference is over. We're staying an extra day. Kind of let the hangover wear off. And we're looking at Mount Adams, and we're taking these beautiful daytime pictures. And I started to get something on my cameras, and I went, wait a minute, that's... That's not supposed to be there. I can't see anything with my naked eye. What is that? What is that up there? And then I thought, well, man, it's got to be a bird. It's got to be some kind of flaw in my camera or something. Well, there were other people taking pictures next to me. So I said, all right, let's run an experiment. Let's take 10 photographs together, your digital camera, different brand than mine, and my digital camera, and we'll compare photographs, and we'll see what we see. Well, guess what? We picked up that ship. All 10 photographs. And here's the crazy thing. We blew it up. It's just sitting there. I blew it up again. This is high resolution, 14 megapixels. Look how crystal clear the mountain is. But the ship's fuzzy. What's going on? What the hell is going on? I blew it up again. And I did some calculations. 500 feet long, cigar-shaped. And then I tried to figure out why in the world can't I see it in broad daylight against a kind of a hazy background with my naked eye, but my digital cameras can pick it up. 
Turns out the eye works off of photon stimulation of the rods and cones in our eyes, and we become habituated pretty quickly. That is to say, I'm looking at this computer screen, so are you, which is flickering at 70 cycles per second. Can you see the flicker? I can't. Ships have the same technology. They flicker, so the rods and cones in our eyes can't pick it up, but digital cameras oversample. That's how they get the resolution. And so they can't coordinate that, and the digital camera picks it up, and that's why we can see the ships with our digital cameras, and they're not crispy clear, because they're using technology to route the photons around their ships. This is a daytime shot, folks. Two cameras, same picture, same location, same measurement. That's no bird. All these things bring to our remembrance that we're not alone on this planet. We're not alone in the universe. And I made this comment in one of my books and I stick with it. When we go around this earth and we see amazing construction, the pyramids in Egypt, cheats in Itza, stuff that we find all over this country, things that just make no sense because they're made out of stone and they're made out of such amazing architecture, there's no possible way a primitive race did it. Aliens, it was aliens. What if it was us? What if it was us on one of our iterations on this planet and we realize that planet Earth is gonna rise up and it's gonna spank the hell out of us and there's only one thing that can survive Earth and that's Earth. So we build these edifices out of stone so the next time we reach that level of technology, we can see these things and ask the question, how do you think these things were made? And that act of asking that question reminds us of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing instead of heading over the cliff again and again and again. And when I travel around the world and talk about hollow earth theory or hollow earth hypothesis or hollow earth experiments, I get such a passion that comes back at me, not like anything else I talk about. Believe me, people are mad about the hollow earth. They're just crazy about it. They're excited about it. Something inside them tells them this is right. We're not just living on a rock floating through space accidentally. There's a union here between the souls of this earth and the planet itself. And it's trying to tell us something. And I think that's maybe the purpose of us being here. I think that we are being divided and confused and massed over and put into solitary confinement to prevent us from remembering who we are. So I ask you, do you remember? Do you remember the fact that maybe there's a grid of energies around this earth and if you tie those grids together, you get this pattern. Some of you are wearing that pattern right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We're talking about the Merkaba, we're talking about the one shape that goes from 
the second dimension, which is a flat universe, to the third dimension, which is the dimension we're in with time, and that is the tetrahedron. <clears throat> we know this shape, we've seen this shape. We see this shape all over the place. We see it in our dreams. We know exactly what it means. It is the rotating fields of light energy that create the third dimension. And I have a whole nother lecture about the golden mean and why this shape even exists in the first place. But it all ties into inner earth. It all ties into the energy of the earth and the energy of the people. The Tibetans knew this and they drew it everywhere I went. You see this tetrahedron, this flower of life, this conscious symbol that there is an inner earth energy and it is tied into the human soul and that we are inextricably linked together. And when we deny that, when we move away from that, Earth wins every time. This is a building in Shigatse. This is about 14,500 feet. This is way up in the mountains. It has a spiral walkway all the way up to that basket you see at the top. This is uh, bright sunshine. Let me tell you, the ultraviolet radiation is very intense up there. 108 rooms in this thing telling the story of the creation of the earth. This is the Potala, which is up until 100 years ago the tallest building in the world. It's made of sticks, like little sticks laid on its side and jammed together to make the walls. So I went there with the intention of not staying on the government tour. And I'm confessing now that I have bribed government officials in multiple countries. So I bribed the Chinese guard and he opened the door and he let me down in the very bottom basement of this, of this building. And I was very discreet about it. I didn't go stomping down there and let everybody know I was down there. But when I got down there, I saw this structure. And this structure defied my senses. I asked my guide who was with me, I said, Punzalo, what the hell is this thing? And it went, it was as tall as this ceiling. By the way, that's how, how big the basement was down there. And I'm showing you these Tesla pictures, these Tesla coil pictures for a reason. Because what I saw down there was called a stupa. And I, the reason it defied me is because I thought, I thought the Chinese would have stripped this thing to the core by now because it was made of gold. And it had 10,000 gems on it. And if you'll notice, coming out the top is this kind of a, I don't know, stacked coil structure. And then you see that V shape coming out of it, like wings, and then red, white, and blue ribbons wrapped around it. Like, what in the hell were they trying to tell us with this? And all those energy waves coming around that likeness of a Panchen Lama in the middle of it. And by the way, those are sapphires lining the outside of that, big sapphires. So I said, Punsala, what is this thing? He said, it's a stupa. And he said, well, it's used to transport the soul of a Panchen Lama through that four-dimensional stargate you see on the ceiling 
back to nirvana after he dies. I said, well, it sounds really good, but that's awful lot of gold in a pretty poor country and a lot of energy and a lot of work to go into this. And I'll tell you what I see. I see a Tesla coil. He said, what? I said, oh yeah, this has been built before, or should I say since. This was built in 646 BC, or 646 AD, and Tesla built his in 1906. But it looks like this. And guess what? When I overlay the two of them and animate it, it looks exactly the same. The same coils, the same electricity, the Tibetans saw it, and they built it stylized, because they didn't know what electricity was. Tesla saw it, recognized what it was, and built it out of wire and made it work. And that four-dimensional Stargate is everywhere. By the way, let me ask a question. How many people here saw the movie The Last Mimsy? I knew that. I knew that. That's a kid's movie, and it's not directed very well. And except for the kids, it isn't acted very well. And the music, eh, it's okay. But the concept really strikes home. Do you remember what the concept was? Oh, yeah, yeah, that you had a little girl and a little boy, and he was the engineer, and she was like the psychic, you know, that kind of spun the stones and all. That was the cool part. But you remember why the Mimsy was sent? The Mimsy was sent because the future mankind vaccinated themselves to the point where they had no immune system and they had to live inside rubber suits. So they decided to recapture ancient DNA and they sent a stuffed rabbit with advanced technology to, to capture DNA from the past so they could bring it to the future and fix the race of mankind. A little prophetic, don't you think? But I thought the thing with the spiders was the coolest, don't you? <clears throat> so Nikola Tesla says he received pure visions of his inventions. He didn't make them iteratively. That is to say, let's build this and then this and then this. He built it full scale right away. And he said his downloads of this high technology, they're very common throughout history. I read a biography of mathematicians. I know you're going, that guy's really a nerd. But it was exciting because each one of these mathematicians, Riemann and Chandra Sakar, and all these brilliant people that changed the history of math forever, they all say they received whole mathematics in dreams. They didn't derive the math. They got the finished math and then had to go figure out what do these symbols mean. Same thing. So my question is, do these messages, these dreams, do they come from Earth? Are they stored somewhere in Earth? And then people, each time they have a lifetime, they go back and get the record that they once had. That's a very interesting question. When I think of sentience of the universe, it's undeniable. Mankind throughout history makes sudden massive leaps in technology. We assume it comes from extraterrestrial, Venusian, Pleiadian, Arcturian people. But maybe it comes from Earth, because I know that was my experience. And Scott remembers this. 
I was uh, at East SETI, August 17, 2006. And I was in the computer room, that was where my cot was, and I could see Mount Adams from my room. And that day we had just gotten refreshed on meditation technology, so I decided to meditate that day. And uh, this amazing connection happened between me and Mount Adams. And by amazing, I mean it was felt like a dryer hose connected straight to my chest, right out the window, all the way to the mountain. Now my eyes are closed, I don't really see what's going on, but I can hear what's going on. And I could feel this kind of pulsating against my chest, like air pressing against me. And I could hear music. Actually, it wasn't music, it was singing, like choir singing, like Tchaikovsky, like unbelievable layers and layers and layers of voices. And after about a minute, I figured out what they were singing. They weren't singing a song, they were singing words. And the words were peace, love, and joy, really long, really stretched out, like I could pick out all the harmonies. And that went on for about three minutes and then it stopped. Still connected, I heard this voice come down the tube and it said, because you are quick to forgive, you are forgiven. And the tube disconnected from me. And when it did, I just decompressed and came out of meditation with a gasp. And the people were sitting around me, I, I said, God, did you see that? And they each said, did you see that? I said, what? What, what, what did I miss? I have my eyes closed. They said, you had all these gold tablets and drawings and everything going into your back in the dark. And we don't want to say anything. We don't wake you up. But then you burst out of this and we just want to let you know that you just got a big download. <laughs> that was 2006. I was 52 years old. I wore glasses and I had asthma. And I weighed 40 pounds more than I do right now. I laid my glasses down for the last time. I didn't have any asthma after that. I dropped 25 pounds in about a month and a half and I started to write. I didn't write my first book till I was 52. So now I'm just uh, trying to share the stories and try to keep it going. I can tell you we're gonna run some experiments on this ship because when we go, we take this route, I think you'll agree this is a challenge. Let me just skip ahead to that part. I don't want to talk about the experiment right now. I want to talk about where we're going. This is pictures from Tibet. These are female Tibetan monks living in ruins up on the mountains. I made friends with them. They spoke no English. I did not speak any Tibetan, but I think we got it. This is 18,500 feet, as high as I could go without leaving my teammates behind. As you can see, there's no grass, there are no trees, but everywhere you see stacks of prayer rocks. People that get that high stack rocks together and leave a prayer on that mountain because this is considered the ring of power of the earth. This is obviously Egypt, been there, done that many times. But I was able to get my hands on Om Seti, that's Dorothy Eddy in English. Om Seti's handwritten journal in Hani Elzani's 
house. He showed it to me. This is Hani Elzani. He's passed away since then. And this is her handwriting. And she's translating hieroglyphs. No one in the world has seen these other than my pictures of this. That manuscript was never published. Yes, from ancient Egypt, right, because she believes she's the reincarnated priestess from Abydos, Seti's original, uh, let's just call it a passion of, of uh, Osiris and Isis. But here written in the hieroglyphs, it says they escaped into the earth. And I thought that was most interesting, so I photographed it and I circled it. People ask me all the time, okay, so you've traveled the world, spent all this money, gathered all this information, given all these great uh, presentations, what's next? Well, what's next is we're gonna go see. We're gonna go see if this crustal opening exists this ancient legend of the hollow earth. I don't think it's a big hole like this, but this is Murmansk. I know it's spelled Murmansk, but Russians call it Murmansk. It's actually a resort community at the top of this river, north of St. Petersburg, way north of St. Petersburg, like way north of Finland. It's right on the edge of the Arctic Ocean. But this is where the nuclear-powered icebreakers are parked and we intend to charter one of these ships and sail from there to the North Magnetic Pole, survey this 100 square miles, uh, that is to say uh, 100, uh, 100 miles by 100 miles, 10,000 square miles, and come back in 15 days. And we think, based on our records, that that crustal opening is somewhere in there. We're gonna drop what I designed is called a dart. It's eight feet long, it weighs about 200 pounds, and it has a gas cylinder on it. It drops to the bottom 4,400 meters deep, by the way, that's why you can't take a sub there. It sinks a core sampler into the bottom, inflates a bag with that gas cylinder, and floats back to the surface. And then we we'll recharge it and drop it again. We, we're gonna build four of them. <clears throat> we think that we can take core samples off the bottom and the six universities that we're taking with us will analyze those cores and tell us what life lived on the bottom of that sea. Sure, there'll be fossil life, there'll be diatoms, there may be living things, I don't know, but I will say if we get close to that crustal opening, we'll see a rapid and high concentrated shift in life forms. And that'll be a confirmation that we have found the opening. Sir James Ross stopped here at the North Magnetic Pole. We're going to go a little bit further than that. And I can tell you in the spirit of exploration, because I am an Earth explorer, we're going to do this expedition. It is expensive to a land with no horizon. This is the ship. It's called the Arctica. 450 feet long, 75,000 horsepower, nuclear-powered icebreaker. We cannot go to the moon. We cannot go to Mars. But we can go to the North Pole.
It's a $3.7 million venture. But it isn't all money, well, it is all money outlaid. We actually organized our dry run in 2020. We had all our tickets bought. We were gonna to go to Mermunks, photograph the ships, interview people, and then come back and try to raise money for the venture. And they decided to lock the entire world down, so we didn't go, and we lost all our money. And right now, you can't buy Russian dressing, let alone rent a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker. But the day will come, I promise you. There's a huge spirit that goes with this venture. Lots and lots of people want us to do We have 40 million fans around the world. We made a short film in 2007, won the Jeans of Galileo contest, and 17 million people saw our video in one night. We think if we can raise the money to go, we already have a satellite, we can live stream from the ship four channels, and people will pay to watch that live stream. And we think we can not only make our money back, but we can make enough money to do voyage number two. And this time with a submersible. This is the ship, it's real. The shipping company is real. And the universities are all lined up. As I said, this, these are not smooth waters. This is a calm day. We're talking 10 story seas. So if you're seasick, don't think about coming. But you can go to my website at northpoleinnerearthexpedition.com and nippy.com and learn all about it. The business plan is there. Our team is there. You can write us. You can ask us questions. You can route us to somebody that's rich enough to pay for it. <laughs> uh, but um, one way or another, we're going to make this happen. I'm on the air every Wednesday and every Sunday at 8 p.m. with America Free Radio. I'm live on Rumble and Facebook and Twitter and DLive and Twitch. And all those archives are stored. So if you miss the live program, you can watch it anytime. And all the episodes at all times are free. Please sign up for my newsletter. We'll send you updates to everything we're doing twice a week. And it's free. My name is Brooks Agnew. Thank you so much. Thank you. I will take any and all questions. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Does anybody have any questions? Bring them on. Run back the slides. Oh, oh. Oh, this one here, I'm sorry, this one. Yeah, and my website's just brooksagnew.com. So if you go to brooksagnew.com, you'll link to all this stuff. What was the question? Oh, my, uh, my question is, um, I just want to say, uh, 
Uh, two quick questions. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you're the real deal because the, the Pope himself couldn't get a visa to Tibet in the 1980s, so I know you're real because no one else could do that. Um, and um, my, my two quick questions are, is your theory that there's a sun in the center of the earth and that the sun gives off like our elements, so the sun is basically expanding, giving off all these elements, and that's where the matter is coming to make the earth expand? My second question is, um, I'll let you start with that one real quick. So you want to know about expanding matter? Yeah, like where, how is the Earth getting bigger? Like you're saying the Earth is one-third its size. Where is it getting the matter? Is it getting space stars or comets? Or is it actually the sun in the center of the Earth like creating like nuclear like elements, like how gold comes off the sun and we... Well, there, there are a couple theories about how the Earth got here in this yeah. solar system. Uh, there used to be a theory which we call moon capture theory. That is to say the Earth was here and the moon came along and Earth captured it. But we have since... Uh, regressed that and decided that what really happened is earth capture theory. That the moon was here and the earth came along in this orbit and the moon and the earth coalesced. So the odd thing about the arrangement of the moon and the earth is the, is the fact that the moon can block out the sun completely except for the corona. But there's one other moon in our solar system that kind of operates the same way, and that's Ipsalis, which is a moon of Saturn. It is also spherical, and it is also tidally locked to Saturn, unlike all of its other moons. So we, we definitely think that there's some intelligent design in the placement of Earth and the moon. And my second question really quick is, uh, the Department of Energy came out and they announced that for the first time ever, we um, have a science team that created more energy in an output than we put into the device. Um, and that's like never been done before. And that's, I guess, it's not nuclear fission, it's actually nuclear fusion. Is that the type of free energy technology you're talking about that we could use going forward? In 2006, I formed a company called Phoenix Science Foundation. I funded it. And we went to 22 different labs around the world to investigate new energy technology. And after I was done, 21 of them were fake, and one of them was real, and it did not put out energy. All it did is convert energy, but it did, did such a great job that we put it into manufacturing, and it's been in manufacturing for 17 years. So I looked at everything. I looked at seal, I looked at a Searle, I looked at uh, 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 the Medini motor, I looked at all the water technologies. Everything required more energy out, or more, more energy in than we got out. Some of it was very high efficient, but it wasn't what we call zero-point energy. I'm just saying I put my money where my mouth was, and we went. Hello. Uh, I have a question about the honeycomb earth theory. Do you have any comments or thoughts about that? That below our crust there are honeycomb-shaped caverns? Uh, well, I went to Mammoth Cave if that's what you're asking about. And we explored Mammoth Cave as deep as it goes. And I even met with the staff and I said, now be honest with me, what's the deepest section of this cave ever seen? It was 366 feet. So I doubt anybody has walked into the inner earth or seen anything like that. If the crust is 900 miles thick, it would take you a year to walk it. And I don't think anybody can carry that much food with them. So I am aware of 
a kind of trap door, not a trap door, but a special condition that people put on it about a dimensional portal that you can walk into a dimensional portal in Shangri-La or Mount Shasta or whatever and somehow suddenly end up in Telos. I've been to Shasta probably 40 times. I've been on all those tours. I've taken instruments with me. Never seen any opening. It's a great legend, great legend. And people that have been there, they all have a slightly different version of what's going on there. But um, I consider that a fact in that it's a direct observation, but it's an uncorroborated fact. Thank you. Um, do you subscribe to that um, as the Earth orbits in the galaxy, they say every 10, 20,000 years or whatever it is, that we kind of come back to a similar place that we were before? Do we go in like a cyclical thing where we re-enter the same area? Over sure. So is there any, you know, the core at one point, some people say that the core might start spinning once we hit a certain area might stop spinning a certain way or it doesn't spin at all. They say that it could ca cause like a shift. That actually sounds very reasonable to me. Is it? Okay. So I, I was thinking that maybe that's when all those big apocalypses happen that we might be kind of getting there again. If I heard your question correctly, I think yeah. it'd be very hard to sample, but yeah. I, th I think it makes sense to me. It's okay, so maybe go inside, right? That's the bottom line. All right, thank you. Hi, um, can you elaborate a little bit more on your thoughts about how the Earth is splitting to, and as humans are splitting, and the Earth is splitting and? Sure, uh, well, there's a principle called conservation of momentum. So it basically says that there's a fixed amount of energy in any system and in space everything rotates. So the smaller it gets, the faster it has to rotate. The more mass it has in a smaller area, the faster it rotates. On the extreme end of that is a black hole. A black hole is spinning at its maximum speed. It can't spin any faster. On the other end of it, we have galaxies, which revolve very, very slowly. And the matter that's on the outer rim of the galaxy, like us, we're actually moving fairly, well, we're moving at the same speed through space as the inner part, but we're taking longer, or the same amount of time to get around, but we're traveling more distance. So <clears throat> the idea of, I think, the precession of the equinoxes, which says that our solar system travels through different star constellations, 12 of them, and we do it over and over and over again, is partially true, because we don't come back to the same spot every time. We, we change spots. It's sort of like, uh, I can go back to the creation. When source decided to divide itself to create us, shards of itself, right? It took the square root of itself. It didn't cut itself in half, it took the square root of itself. That's, this is the mathematical truism. Well, even if you have, say, 10 trillion shards that are created through the square root process, it doesn't take very long to approach one, right? Like the square root of 256 is 16, the square root of 16 is four, square root of four is two, square root of two is one point something, right? And the square root of that, one point something. So it's asymptotic. So that is to say we all approach one, but we don't quite get there. The 
point I'm trying to make is, in the beginning, we're all created fairly equal in pairs. But with each life that we live, we make a circle. But it's not the same circle. It's a spiral. And each time we gain more and more experience and we build greater and greater energy until we reach completion. You know, it says in the scriptures, be therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. It's translated incorrectly. It's supposed to say, be therefore complete even as your Father which is in heaven is complete. Once you overcome all, you become a pillar of heaven, never to go out again, to go no more out. That's Revelations chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. So this is the point I'm trying to make. We never come back to the same spot. Just like reading a book for the second time, you get more out of it the second time because you're a different person the second time. And that's where we are today. I think we're at a point where we're not going to walk over the cliff again because we're more awake now than we've ever been before. Yes. Uh, is there, this is kind of a wishful thought, is there a way to make an artificial magnetosphere since ours has been kind of going up and down and kind of getting crazy? Is there a way to what? A magnetosphere to make an artificial or a, a technological, oh. or maybe an isolate a, an area with a magnetosphere type of technology. Evidently there is, because we can sure mess with the magnetosphere of Earth. CERN's doing it all the time. And yes, it is possible to make a personal magnetosphere to protect yourself from electrosmog. And if you go to my website, you'll see some of that technology. Cool, thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you so much. Give one more thank round of applause. So